Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Jeff Macalino podcast. Uh, very excited for the one I am bringing you today. Uh, hey, thanks to everyone who reached out to me from uh, my last solo podcast. Um, I'm doing just fine. Uh, uh, you know, with uh, the the COVID, uh, better than uh, the family members of mine who caught it, aside from my children, uh, really had no problem, to be quite honest. I frankly uh, got a couple of the best night's sleep I've had in as long as I can remember. So, uh, you know, it <laughs> helped me sleep a little bit, so... Uh, feel 100% fine, uh, but back, back at them, I mean, it's been, uh, uh, more than two weeks now, and, uh, since I've had any, uh, symptom or side effect whatsoever, so, back, uh, beginning to re-enter the world, uh, today was the first time I've driven a car in two weeks, I think. And uh, took my son to get a new phone. So my 8-year-old has an iPhone 11. And uh, Apple changed the the wall anchor for the charger. And they don't include it with the phone anymore. I love the nickel and diming. <laughs> Shit. Like, yeah, it's a $600 phone, which I was able to get half off and pay in uh, 24 monthly installments to make things a little more palatable. Uh, but regardless of all that, I love the nickel and diming of, yeah, but it's 21 bucks if you want to ever charge the phone, because they don't include it with the phone anymore. I love the, uh, I love that little thing. Uh, I, I don't understand it, but maybe that's why I'm not a successful uh, entrepreneur. But I know one uh, person who is, and he's my guest on the podcast this week. Uh, very excited to uh, get to speak with Michael Stein. And uh, I had so much fun talking to him. Now, he is, uh, he's got quite a long resume. He is a uh, mentioned in Entrepreneur. Uh, he is also an actor, writer, director, producer, stand-up comedian, and host of a podcast, uh, which is called The Long Shot Leaders, uh, Long Shot Leaders Podcast. Um, obviously, a lot of the things that he has had success in uh, are things that are very interesting to me. And I think uh, we probably touched in our conversation on about 10% of the awesome things. Uh, but, you know, he, he's been incredibly successful in many different avenues, uh, areas, avenues. I, I don't know the words. Uh, <laughs> uh, but had a blast talking to him. Uh, you know, just a, a really fun conversation, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine how many tremendous stories he has, and, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, well, listen to the podcast, uh, but hopefully even a, uh, a future movie just seems like there, there has to be so many great, uh, stories and, uh, subplots going on in, uh, the, uh, underground gambling, uh, discussion, uh, that, uh, that we talk about. So we, we talk about a lot of things, uh, including, uh, uh, Dan Marino and, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot about comedy, airport bars, uh, the movie Rocky, which, uh, you know, played a big part in his, uh, uh, upbringing, maybe I'd say, uh, or at least the motivation for him, uh, and Rocky, of course, is one of the great movies, um, shout out Sylvester Stallone, uh, <laughs> but anyways, 
we talk about a lot of things, and I had a great time, and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, you will enjoy it as well, and uh, share with a friend. I love, I do a really poor job at uh, uh, promoting this podcast. I'm not a marketing major by any means. Uh, I know I should do better, and uh, one of these days I'll I'll figure it out. I'm not, you know, I'm not great at the the promotion part of things, uh, but the growth that the podcast has had in listeners, uh, and it's really it's been what six months, not even six months now uh, that I've been doing this, and uh, you know, I, the growth has been. Great, and I love all of you who listen, who share, subscribe. Uh, if if you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead, give me a five star rating. Uh, I will be. I'm I'm figuring out slowly some uh, additional uh, things I can offer, uh, including video on YouTube and uh, maybe some some stand up uh, clips may. Uh, may leak out as well. I've got the website now, jeffmacalino.com, uh, which, you know, is is mainly just a uh, an entry point so that if people wish to contact me or uh, find out a little bit more about me, you'll have a, a way to do that. So, anyways, I hope you enjoy this. I certainly did, and... Uh, I'll I'll check back with you at the end. Enjoy this great talk with me and Michael Stein. All right, now I welcome entrepreneur, actor, writer, director, producer, stand-up comedian, podcaster, and probably many other things, uh, Michael Stein uh, to the Jeff Macalino podcast. How are you, Michael? Doing well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh it's a pleasure to speak with you because, uh, well, your your introduction alone touches on how many things uh, you've you've done, uh, and it's fascinating to uh, to look at everything you've been able to do, and uh, I have a, a gazillion questions. <laughs> Let's get into it, man. You, you you you're the leader here, so you go for it. So the uh, the I, I guess let's start in the beginning. I know you had uh, some childhood uh, health issues uh, and um, uh, interesting uh, parental uh, figures. It's it sounds I, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so it kind of ties into the podcast. Why I started a podcast called Longshot Leaders because I consider myself a long shot. I, my grandmother escaped the Russian concentration camps on her way to America. My dad was a New York homeless street kid, made millions of dollars, but then only to lose again. He was homeless again. So I had, we, I grew up in Encino, wealthy neighborhood, but we were the poorest family. When you lost those money, we, my mom kept the home. They got divorced and she kept the home in Encino, but we were like a poor family that lived in a rich neighborhood. We're like the Encino Jubilees. So <laughs> we, anybody knows what the Beverly Hills Hillbillies are. So you know, I had to sleep in the same room with my grandmother until I was nine years old. And I would hear that story of how you're lucky to be alive. And I was a premature kid because my mom, she's like, you know, I was the youngest. I was an oops baby. So she's like, you know, you weren't planned. I drank, I smoked, I ran up and down the stairs. And she'd tell us to everybody. I'm like, mom, they just want to know if you want blue cheese or ranch. Can you just give me the order? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I grew up, you know, I, I had health issues. I had they, said, they didn't know what I had. I was put in a special school for like six months for special needs kids. They don't know ADHD or ADD or dyslexia or any of that. So health issues and all kinds of stuff, you know, my, what's, what's wrong with Mike? Why is he in the hospital? You know, you know, just had, they didn't know what it was, you know, just, just stuff, you know? And I don't, I didn't have any success. I was just an awkward kid, you know, I'm quiet when I'm supposed to speak up loud when I'm supposed to be quiet. And the only success I had is I was the entertainer, right? I was a young kid that was, you know, funny. I made people laugh at me, with me, whatever. But then things kind of changed, and this is what it ties into my story and Longshot Leaders is that when 
I was around 10 or 11 years old. My parents took me to go see a movie, Rocky, like most young boys in America. I saw a guy that was like me. I was like, he was like, failed a lot, kept on trying hard. You know, he was funny. The only difference between Rocky and myself is that he was physically fit and I was not. So I said, I'm going to be physically fit every day since then I'm going to like, you know, exercise. And from that point on, you know, by the time I was 16, I became a physical fitness trainer. That was like the second bit of success that came to me easily, you know, was fitness. I was still a basket case in school and, uh, but making people laugh. So when I was graduating high school, I told my high school tutor, I said, she said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be an actor, an entrepreneur and a comedian. And she says, well, maybe you should work with your hands because not everybody's meant to do what they want to do. <laughs> and I said, screw you. I'm going to do like my dad did. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Even though he failed, he, he didn't finish the eighth grade. I'm going to, I finished high school. So I'm ahead of the game. Right. So I was going to do what he did. He, he started with a, he had a tool company and uh, I started a tool company working out of my parents' house, you know, the day after high school. And within two weeks, I just failed miserably. So I was like, gosh, she's right. You know, it's the ebb and flow of success and failures starting. And then, you know, with, I, I said, well, I got to go back to school. So I went to, to city college. I wasn't going to graduate college, but I was, I'll just take a course in drama, business, and psychology. Within six months, I, I did stand-up comedy when I was 19 and for the first time, and I brought a lot of people there. And it was that was successful. And I said, you know, I can't. I don't know how to make money being a stand-up comedian because when you're a young comedian, you don't make shit. So I was like, you know, I brought a lot of people here. And in the late 80s, nightclubs were just blowing up. I said, I'm going to start being a nightclub promoter. And within six months, it hit for me. I, You know, that hyperactive attitude, wanting to be connected to people, I became the number one nightclub promoter in Los Angeles in my age bracket. And I went on to, you know, within like six months after that, I orchestrated probably the biggest movie premiere party at a nightclub ever. 4,000 people at the Park Plaza Hotel, which is the LA holy grail of venues and working with Warner Brothers and, you know, I'm 21 years old. And, and that opened up the doors for me, you know, to become an actor, you know, my first acting role, playing Dirk Diggler in the Dirk Diggler story, which became Boogie Nights, which I appear in as well. And that opened up doors for me to be around people that were very successful. And then I said, well, you know, the next thing is from being an entrepreneur, from being a, a nightclub promoter, now I want to be an actor. So I left the nightclub business. So I kind of segued out of it by directing documentaries because I was going to do what my friend Paul Thomas Anderson did. I saw him start to do short films and kind of make it headway. So I'm going to do documentaries in the nightclubs. So I did a documentary on the LA club scene. I packed the park plaza again with 4,000 people because it was like put all the famous people in the LA club scene on an invite and documentary and that became big. And then I said, well, I'm going to do a documentary around the country. So I did rave scenes for start. I wasn't a raver, but <laughs> rave scenes were starting to blow up. So I did a documentary. I left my business at that point and I went around the country for four months directing a documentary on the rave scene, the history of house music, how it got started. And I was broke at the end of that. And I had a lot of money as an icon promoter. So I burned the boats to do that. So that, that did well as far as like people wanted, but it didn't make money. So I was broke again. And this ebb and flow, once again, underdog story, right? And then I, you know, came back to nightclub promotion. I did underground gambling casinos and I, you know, was promoting again. I still wanted to be a filmmaker. When I got loosely uh, approached by someone loosely connected to the Castellano family and said they want to be partners, I don't know if the Castellano family is, you know, mafia in New York. And this guy who's very, you know, he owned a bar and he's very forthright. He said, and I said, well, that's it. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm leaving the nightclub business for good. And I worked as a film production assistant for three years and commercials and, and just as a peon, you know, working paycheck to paycheck. And that enabled me to get the skill set and meet connections where I can make my first true film, which was an award-winning short film called um, Rituals and Resolutions, which made the second pass to the live action short for Academy Awards and got by HBO and got me, you know, connect, you know, meetings with everybody in Hollywood, Joel Silver's office who did Die Hard and all these people and uh, Trimark Pictures was, you know, I wrote a screenplay, many screenplays, but the one they wanted to do was about underground gambling casinos in Los Angeles that I wrote, which is, they were getting close to that, but it didn't turn out to a movie deal. So now mm. I'm broke. I'm in debt. I can't make a movie. No, it's been two years. So I said, screw it. I got to be an entrepreneur again. And then I 
it was desperate. You know, the internet was kind of new still. I said, I have to sell a widget. I started a company, had nothing to do with Hollywood. It was like, you know, just selling tarps, which was a tool, one of the tools that my dad sold. So I worked out of my, my rented shack and I started selling these tarps. Within six months, I made enough money to make a movie with Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick, and Coolio. Got to act, write, write produce, direct, act with Academy Award winning actress. And almost bottomed out my business to pay for that. And that won awards too, but it didn't make its money back. Just a runaway train, like crazy working out of this house, trying to run a business, trying to make a movie. And after that, I, I said, I'm going to take care of this business. You know, the micro passion versus opportunity, you know, methodology. I chose that opportunity. And I, since then, I built that business into a hundred million plus dollar business. And I still do stand up, but I kind of left LA, moved out just north of Austin, Texas to build my business. And I started this podcast because I'm now opening up again to kind of get an entertainment, you know, now that my kids are getting a little older and do stand up again. And that's why I do Long Shot Leaders. So I said, because you do a podcast, it'd be about somebody that's kind of go through that ebb and flow. And that's a reader digest version about myself. There's more to it. But that's pretty much why I do the show that I do and why we're here today. Yeah. Well, no, and it's it's uh, fascinating. And uh, your story and uh, uh Let's let's uh, I'll 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 dig in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> your uh, your dad, you mentioned he he went from being homeless to admit. Now, were, was this before you were born, or were was he in money and then without money again while you were kind of growing up? Man, it's an interesting story. So he was <laughs> he got put in an orphanage when he was eight years old because his dad took off and his mom couldn't afford him. So he ran away from the orphanage. You know, he's homeless. Finally, I was able to sleep on his grandmother's couch. Eventually, he became, you know, he became somewhat successful in the tool business. But then it was, there was like a trucking strike, and, and he, was, he was able to buy enough money to buy our house in Encino, you know. But then the business kind of faltered, and he said, I need to do something else. He had a business partner at the time named Alan Smith, and I'll tell you why I say that. But then he sold these calculators in the early 70s, left the tool business, made millions of dollars selling these tools. They called him the calculator kit. Sold like millions of these calculators. And then he had a lavish lifestyle in the, in the 70s. I mean, disco parties and orgies and all kinds of stuff you can, can't have possibly. Jeff, the carnality you can't imagine. <laughs> Burt Reynolds' character, loosely based, you know, his caricatures on my dad, because Paul loved my dad. Paul Thompson loved my dad. And he kind of wrote his personality based on that character. So then he lost all his money from that lavish lifestyle. His partner, Alan Smith, and that tool company started a small company called Harbor Freight in the mid-70s. turned out to be a publicly traded multi-billion dollar company, Harbor Freight. Yeah. I saw that ebb and flow. So my dad, by the time he came back with that, after that lavish lifestyle, he was homeless again. I was in high school. He actually wrote, did, went to jail on a white-collar crime, doing check-kiting, writing a bad check to get merchandise. And, and he spent four months in jail. And I worked for him a whole summer when I was 17, visiting him in jail and working for him. Only for him to get robbed by the guy that I was working for, that he, you know, when he was trusting to get out of jail. So he was homeless, living in a van outside the house that he bought in Sino. My mom was remarried at this point. They were friendly, and I'd go to school, you know, in my last year of high school, and kind of knocking on the van door. Dad, I'm going to school, and that was kind of cool because I got to see my Rolling Stone father once in a while. But yeah, he was homeless, and that's kind of like his journey that ebb and flow. My dad. Wow. It's a it, and it's an interesting. I don't know if role models the interesting example of of a parent to to see them succeed and fail, um, and uh, I mean I, I don't I don't know if his personality was such that he still had good spirits even when he was living in a van, or as I good as possible. <laughs> the guy was a cross between. He looked like Elvis. Look, you know, a little bit of a De Niro. Elvis kind of look, very strikingly good looking, you know, personality of Santa Claus. Everybody liked him. He just cheated on my mom for 25 years and just had a Rolling Stone lifestyle. It was hard to hate him, though. Really dynamic, you know. Um, and uh, he just, uh, you know, the party, I, I would go over to his house in Woodland Hills, which is like right next to the porno capital of the world. And there'd just be crazy parties. And as a kid, you know, you walk into a place and like, there's something going on here last night. You feel that energy and crazy <laughs> shit, and, you know, drugs and he wasn't an alcoholic. He was just, you know, he just did every other kind of drug in the world. And it was just, just imagine like that disco, porno, L.A., crazy, 
Hollywood lifestyle, and that was what I kind of grew up around when I was. So my mom would was like, you know, like she was attractive woman. She like Marilyn Monroe with the personality of Don Rickles, and she would warn me, you know, about my dad. When you go over there, don't drink from him. He's hanging out with whores, and you, you know, you don't bring a you don't bring a prostitute to your bar mitzvah. You know, my you know that's what my dad did. I, I don't know if it was like a backup plan for him or an offering for me, but you just, you know, you're around that stuff. <laughs> and you just learn what not to do. And then you learn how to, I learned from sex success from him and also what not to do as well. Yeah. Probably made the transition to the uh, nightclub uh, business uh, relatively easy. You, you, you knew how to handle yourself around drugs and crazy. <laughs> you, know, you know what? It's like, you know, to me, I never touched a drop of alcohol until I like stopped nightclubs. But to me, it was like I was around so many people because when I hung out with my dad, I would be forced to hang out with a lot of people at one time, you know, parties and people of all walks of life. And you get used to talking to people. So when it came really easy to me because my dad was like, once again, like cross between Elvis and Santa Claus. So he just, you know, meet people. I'd got into, you know, you want to be with your dad alone, but you get forced into. So well, then you, you're social, you know, and I was socially awkward, but, you know, being in L.A., it's actually kind of a gift. <laughs> so, you know, you're like, you're eccentric, you know, so that kind of worked in my favor. So by the time I was able to meet people in the nightclub business, um, you know, the humility of the person that I was, the hunger for wanting connection of people and friends that I didn't have when I was younger. became popular in high school, but those early years kind of shape everything when you don't have friends. So that's what enabled me to push forward. That's It's funny you mentioned the social uh, awkwardness too, because when I started doing, uh, I, I, I can be socially awkward at times, and I've usually, I've used alcohol as a crutch to, you know, that, that gets you past anything, but... Now it's uh, if I if I'm acting strange or something, it's just like oh he he does stand up comedy and they're like oh got it got it that explains everything. You, out, you do stand up out in Florida? Uh, yeah, I open mics. I, I just started in February uh, of yeah. this year. That's why I like you already. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I and I started the podcast and doing stand up at advice of other comedians because. Uh, I actually, I, I reached out to them because I've been writing a couple of screenplays and I'm like, well, these are supposed to be dark comedies, but there's not a lot of comedy in them. <laughs> so it's just a depressing movie. And they're like, you know, uh, if you're trying to find funny, go do stand up. They're like, you don't need to make money doing it, but forcing yourself to talk on stage or talk on a microphone start a podcast, start doing stand-up, you'll figure out some ways to make your, your dark comedy actually funny. <laughs> those friends are right. You know, you just constantly put yourself out there. At a, at a young age, I was so used to failure. You know, I had a friend that, you know, he, he was opening up, up the whiskey at, at a band, and he, he calls me up at the middle of the night, and I said, we're going on in one hour at the whiskey. Do you want to introduce us? You know, nightclub promoter, you know, kind of pseudo-celebrity. And I was like, yeah, but this is a good opportunity for me to do like five minutes, like a five-minute set, Right. So I go to the whiskey, I get on there, I start to do stand-up with no one knowing that I was going to do it. And <laughs> that is not, you got to be a seasoned comedian to try to do stand-up when the crowd's not even introduced to you doing that. And they're there to see a band. And, and got, I got escorted off stage. And they're like, you know, and I was like, man, I got kicked off the stage of the whiskey. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's actually something else I, uh, and weird pull here there's a, a song that came out probably a year ago i think ajr is the band and the the hook of it is a hundred bad days makes a hundred good stories a hundred good stories makes me interesting at parties and i'm like i fucking love that song <laughs> wait is that a song yeah yeah i think it's called a hundred bad days is the name of the song and i actually had a friend like oh this song reminds me of you i'm like yes <laughs> My embarrassment is good. That's a perfect song. <laughs> I, I feel like it's it's kind of a, a very much a stand up kind of thing. Like it, you're you know my misfortune. If it makes other people laugh, it's you know <laughs> it's a win. That, that's the trick for a comedian. You know, when at a young age, when I did it, when I was nineteen, I did, the problem was I did fairly well my first time out, just like golf, you know. And then the second time out, you're what the fuck happened? Oh my god, I suck, <laughs> you know. But then. 
you know, you, you realize when you get over yourself as a, as a comedian, as an actor, as a, an artist at all, you just get over yourself and that frees you up to be like, oh, fucking who gives a shit? And that's when you really get better because then you start concentrating on just going up and getting reps. And yeah. then you start to build something. Yeah, and uh, so you started, were you, you said 19 when you started doing stand-up? Yeah, it was like the heyday of the comedy era, it was like late 80s, and I was 19 years old, and in Encino, uh, a place called L.A. Cabaret, and it's gone now, but uh, that was uh, my first time doing stand-up, and then I went on, you know, do like, you know, Comedy Store and Laugh Factory and other places. Gotcha, and you said you're, you're getting back into that now recently? Yeah, out here in Georgetown, Texas, where I live, there's a place called Barrels and Amps. That's, you know, I, everybody's like, Mike, you're going to, you know, because things are starting to, the podcast, I'm starting to open up a little bit more stuff now. And they're like, well, I promise by, by the end of the year, I'll start doing stand-up again there. And Joe Rogan is opening up a place out here in Austin, which is supposed to be like the shit. Yeah. You know, like the, the new Rennes. Have you heard about it? Yeah, that's how I was going to ask how close you were to Austin. <laughs> 25 minutes north of it, you know, so if I can get my reps in, get in shape, you know, kind of start off with old material and start to introduce some snips, so I have to get my timing and then start to do that locally and then maybe, you know, see what if I can go down there and just, you know, kind of go up there at his new place. That sounds exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, it's almost uh, cosmically uh, uh, meant to be. I mean, because Austin seems like it's going to become the one of, if not the biggest uh, mecca for stand-up because Rogan's bringing his whole crew with him, it seems. Well, he's like a hero. He's like when he went up on stage, his famous moment as a comedian, when he went up and, and Mancia mm-hmm. and Stelia, steal another comedian's material, he goes up on stage. I reached out to him the day after that on MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how long ago that was. <laughs> and I was like, bro, that was, like, that was so cool. You know, Thank you so much for doing that because that's like... If you're a comedian, that's nails on a chalkboard to steal someone else's you know material. Let alone somebody that knows they're doing it and kind of substantiates doing it because they work for him because that's what man Mancia's excuse. And then Rogan, who's like a black belt, you know, on top of being a comedian, goes up there and is like, "Bro, you're stealing his shit." And I was like, "I was like, wow, this guy." And now he's like this, got this folklore hero, you know, as a comedian. And now he's opening up this huge venue in like the Austin, which has got like the, it's L.A. and Texas. No, no holds bar. You know, bring back. You know, saying inappropriate shit. You know, as long as you know, bring back the Rickles esque kind of comedy. Do not let's not be so politically correct. And he's like this hero. It sounds like a, a, a big, big moment for. Him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and I, I love, uh, I love. I don't listen to all of his uh, podcasts because. I mean, that's a full-time job, it seems. Right. It's long. This is long. <laughs> you have to pick and choose. But every time, I love that he, he doesn't apologize. He's just like, you're listening to some idiot who's usually drunk or, or smoking or something, and you're going to get offended by something I say? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know what? You know, it's like, you know, he, I always say this. This is the rule of thumb for me about stand-up and being politically correct or saying something that's inappropriate, appropriate. If you have love in your heart as a comedian and you're truly trying to have rapport with the audience and give them, you know, entertainment, but you're not like, you know, those kind of guys go up there and it's like, I'm all wrapped up in my shit, you know. And, but if you really want to entertain, which is what I think he does, that's your barometer. And I think people will always feel that and be okay with no matter you. That's how you skate around that fine line of like, you know, as long as you use your kindness as, as your barometer. You could bag on people. You could say whatever shit you want. You know, they're not going to be upset with you. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting, but I, I think uh, not apologizing is, is becoming a key. If you if you didn't do anything, I mean, obviously, if you if you do something wrong, uh, <laughs> there's uh, uh, but if you if you're taken out of context or, you know, you just that's what you think. I mean, you know, what what he says is not racist. You know, it's it's mostly COVID stuff, really, that they bag on him about. And it's like... I, it's the, po- the apology's filled with, with humility, though. It's like, or, no, the non-apology is filled with humility. He kind of, like, co- companies with, like, self-deprecation is like, well, yeah. I, mean, I don't apologize for it, but you're just listening to a, a fucking idiot that's like, you know, it's like... <laughs> Beautiful. Right? Yeah. You're listening to a comedian. If you take my medical advice, eh, that's on you. <laughs> right. Perfect. Yeah, and I think that's what I think that's how the, most comedians are going to have to navigate through that challenge that's been going on for I don't know 
six, seven, eight years now, yeah. whatever it is. Well, it seems like once once people, from, from an outside perspective, it seems like once you start going down the apology road, then you actually get labeled as a racist or a sexist or whatever. If you don't apologize, it's just like, he's offensive. Uh, that's, no, okay, <laughs> no. Doesn't I seem to affect apologize. them. <laughs> I, I do both. You know, not to be politically <laughs> correct about it. I do both. I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody. Mm. But, you know, you don't know how I feel. I love you. I said that to make you laugh. Okay? So fucking sue me for that. I mean, I don't give I don't understand. I mean, you can't tell me that I don't love you, you know, because I know what I feel in my heart. And yeah. I said it to try to make you laugh. And, and, you know, and if you can't take a fucking joke, well, then that's your problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Why are you, why are you watching comedy? <laughs> You're so easily offended. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, people talking nauseam about how great Blazing Saddles is. Well, then don't be a hypocrite and, like, you know, talk shit about, like, you know, shit now. You know, it's it's a people really, not to get, you know, like, psychological or personal development about it, but people usually hear something and they want to, like, fight that for their own significance or to gain connection towards their cause celeb or to, you know, have certainty about, you know, who they are and, and make sure that they project themselves onto somebody else. It's usually some other insecure shit that they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I I didn't want to uh, gloss over Rocky either with you. I made my son is eight and my daughter is eleven, and uh, I made them watch all of the Rocky movies uh, except for Rocky Five, which my son was like, "Why Why are you not letting me watch this one?" I'm like, "You You No, you're so you're not going to watch it under like my a, house." <laughs> it's, a, it's the worst fucking one, and it's like, and he knows it. Everybody knows it. Yeah, well, that's why he did Rocky Balboa, right? To to somewhat. <laughs> given and right. at least he got in the ring even if he was an old man that's right that's right now it's a perfect way to like you know he's like this can't be the last fucking one no, I, <laughs> I like so it's funny with rocky is it makes you want to run through a wall but he and i like this to an extent not that i've been a, a fuck up by any means but i like this as a, a 34 year old who's reinventing myself uh, doing things that 19, 20 year olds should probably have been doing, but it is what it is. But I like Rocky was kind of a fuck up too. He was a, he, he, he didn't really work all that hard at his boxing. He got a lucky break to, to fight Apollo Creed cause he was Italian <laughs> and, uh, then he busted his ass. But I like that. It's like when the movie starts, I mean, Rocky's a good guy. He's just kind of a, he's a nice guy. He's kind he's of dumb. He's the nicest loan shark, uh, leg breaker you'll ever meet. Right, right. And he's a, he's a, uh, a lovable uh, doofus, I, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah. but he's, he, you know, his big thing with Mickey in the beginning of that movie or the middle of the movie, he's a lazy bum. He doesn't, he, di he didn't work for things and all of a sudden it clicked and then he well, actually... He yeah, but he, he always he never had the guidance. You, mm -hmm. know? He, you know, his dad said, you know, this is the best advice I'll give you. You're not much of a brand, so you're going to develop your body. You know, yeah. it's like Stallone is, I mean, look, it won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay in 76 for a reason. If he didn't do, you know, I always say this, if Stallone just did Rocky 1 and 2, First Blood, Flat, Lords of Flatfish before that, um, Fist and Copland, you know, just some of those. He would have gone down as like you know a extremely respected you know writer you know auteur, but you know it's all the other things like staying alive and you know Cobra and all that other shit. Yeah. You know, but that screenplay is one of the. I, I was talking to somebody on plane. I'm like, "What are your favorite movies?" I'm talking about, you know, I was like, "Well, this, that, and Rocky." And that's like, really? And I was like, "You don't understand filmmaking. You yeah. don't understand writing and acting and, and shot composition and." and Bill Conti's music and, and the music to picture and I mean to understand that dynamic so that is Jordan in the finals three point shot buzzer nothing but net filmmaking and it, it, people just need to recognize that and understand world's not all black and white it's shades of grey and you can look at Stallone's other movies but isolate that one it's a work of art 
Yeah, no, and it's and I remember uh, there's so many stories I've heard him tell about uh, when he wanted to write the movie, he'd actually go to movies and sit there with a pad and pen and actually write out so he could learn how to write a screenplay. He actually wrote out movies. And then I know he had to fight to actually be the actor, the lead in his movie because he was a nobody. <laughs> oh, he was Rocky and Rocky. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's inspiring, but almost, I, I wonder if it can be done uh, today where a nobody can write a movie and insist, nope, I'm going to act in it. It's, it's, it's my character. I don't know if it can be done. Maybe somebody like, you know, it's like somebody's going to, it's going to happen. You know, somebody social networking wise, they're going to be a format. They're going to do something dynamic and special because that movie was so dynamic and special on what he did. And he just hit the, all the right notes and that'll happen again. It'll, history will always do that. This is, that was his modality at the time, you know, where, you know, the, the, the studio system at that time and, how he got that and 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 just the you know the everything was put together at the right time enabled to have that happen you know but it'll happen again with the right vehicle and time and, and, and concept see that's always so i've i mentioned i've I, a couple of screenplays and a, a comedy series uh, television type thing i've been working on and i always have a character for myself in there and oddly enough, two out of the three things, I'm not the lead either. I'm just like a side comedy character. Right. Um, but I always, I always have to anchor myself in there just as a writing tool, um, just to give it. I mean, you know, if I base a character off of myself, well, I know that character is a legitimate person. <laughs> right. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. That's what you write. What you know. You know. <clears throat> Uh, without dropping names, I know per personal, you know, successful writers nominated for, you know, Academy Awards are like they they use real stories. They use the, it's so they understand the value of that. They will seek out real people and study that dynamic because, you know, life is the best art, you know, and and you when you write about yourself and, and what you know and the more detailed it is and and you're more you know the dynamics of understanding and and really chewing on something for a long time is so valuable. Let's look at, look at Rocky. You know, it's, it's about uh, the, name, the actor's, uh, the boxer's name that, that uh, fought Ali that he based that movie on, you know? It's just, it was real shit, you know, because there's nothing, it's, there's, it's ineffable. There's nothing that can compare to that. Yeah. Did, uh, how much, uh, I mean, you've done, you've had movies made and short films and, and whatnot. Did you ever base anything on yourself or uh, loosely every every single time I mean with, with love Hollywood style you know it's you know it's crazy some stories you know and and out outlandish but those are things that were swirling around in my mind parallel you know circumstances and then accentuated into fantasy because it's like a outrageous comedy it's like a cross between Kentucky Fried movie and American Beauty <laughs> which is like a draw like you know it's a weird you know uh, you know, intellectual kind of, you know, crazy, you know, comedy. But my short film, Rituals and Resolutions, was basically everything I've gone through is about, you know, three people that have let their negative rituals, you know, rule their life. And they, on one night, they try to, you know, escape that negative pattern that they've been in and they commit to stop the pattern. But by the end of the night, they all, you know, you know, uh, it comes to a crescendo where they all end up re breaching their agreement that they all had with each other, set three separate stories that kind of connect. Um, drama, of course. And every single one of those, you know, I lived through it, you know, and, and, you, and that's what you write about. That screenplay that almost got made, you know, into a feature film that uh, still sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll get like somebody says, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make that. The casino one? It was Underground Gambling. Yeah. The casino one, yeah. And I did Underground Gambling casinos in Los Angeles, you know. I, I did it in Sundance for Paul's, my friend Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, Hard Eight. And um, that uh, was a very dynamic. You take those stories, and and, and, and as you're even writing, you know, you, you'll, like when I did that, I wrote it before I, you know, did that underground gambling casino on Sundance. But I remember just John C. Riley. We did it at his condo, you know, for a movie, and I'm doing the, the gambling thing there. And he his his character is almost like his is in real life, you know. So like he got an argument with our with our blackjack dealer, and he was like. They start arguing with each other, and he's like, "Look, man!" And he's like, "Rented condo," and Sunday's like, "Look, man, this is my house." 
and the guys like arguing with him. They're like, well, we're going to do it this way because we're dealing with them right now and all that. And it's all, and I just laughed at him. And I use this line as he's gone to Riley and you, and you just grab these nuggets. I, I was laughing. He goes, what's so funny? I was like, you mad? And I said, the personality is inherently funny. He goes, well, welcome to the magic. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I'm using that line in my stream, you know, and, and that's okay because, like, you're not, you know, it's okay if somebody says something to you or, or, you know, you know, as a comedian, you want you want to ask, you know, can I say that online, uh, on stage? But you know, when you're writing a screenplay, you know, certain things are open for someone else's story, unless they're writing that story or a nuance or a part of a part of a story. Those are what you use, and those are the best moments. Yeah. And I, I, you should that's when you write about what you know and i don't know any other way yeah well it's it's funny that's the uh, that contributes to the social awkwardness at times because nowadays something funny happens and i'll just go to my phone and type type it in like i, I i'm not going to remember this if i don't write this down <laughs> i had a i had a uh a couple of years ago, before uh, COVID craziness, I was flirting with a girl at a bar, and things were going well, and then she asked what dating apps I was on, and I said, I don't do that. And she's like, well, that's really sketchy, and she left. And I had a couple friends who saw and thought things were going well. They're like, what happened? I'm like, oh, hold on, i got to write this down. This is funny. <laughs> this is... <Yeah. laughs> and that, that, that you don't... That, because you're not doing that, that's sketchy. Right, right, and that's I've I've worked it into stand up a little bit because I talk about how miserable dating apps are, real original. But I worked that in, and it's it's like you know I'm just going to say if I were a serial killer, I would definitely be on all the dating apps. <laughs> right, right, that is so funny. But I mean, look, stand up. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something that's like sacrilege. Stand up comedy is becoming, in some ways, not only in some ways, better now. Just like any sport. Because we're able to get the material, you know, log the material, you know, kind of tweak the material, see other, you know, comedians at a rapid rate, you know, and perfect our skill set, you know, at, at lightning speed, more so than when you were a comedian back then, you were like, well, I got to go to Mike's, check out other comedians, you know, do a band, like, maybe I'll like you into like Night at the Improv, you know, Evening at the Improv, like in the early 80s and watch that show. And now you could do things in like so fast and get different perspectives. And how how does that mean for me? That's that we should be asking yourself. How does that pertain to me and my personal life? Because you can't shouldn't copy anybody else's personality. That's just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, but that's why I think stand up comedy is in a sense uh, becoming um, so unique now and better. I think. Yeah, well, I it's funny. I was talking to a uh, uh, old uh, comedy club owner who owned comedy clubs for a couple decades, and I was talking about the. It seems like transition wise, there used to be a lot more characters. Like comedians would go up and be, you know, Larry the Cable Guy esque, uh, where it's it's not. I'm not playing myself on stage. I'm just you know, this character, I'm making jokes. Now there seems to be a real desire for authenticity and, you know, person a personal connection with the comedian uh, that I I feel like there's a less less makeups and more actual stories, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know what? And I, I've always, inherently, probably because I come from a Jewish, you know, cerebral, you know, family, you know, this dysfunctional you know you, you learn at a young age and that's kind of like what i did when i was a kid you start to comment on these things and you it's almost like the eminem i'm gonna joke about myself before you can mm -hmm. you know and inherently i was doing that but a lot there was so in the 80s there were so many comedians with caricatures and 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 or we're talking about the news or i was never that kind of guy or if i did have something about the news it was very slight you know and, and then i would kind of get more into what came natural was like and i think that's always that's never going to run out of style human psychology humans are interested in other humans so when you go on stage and you hear someone's life and now and also that can't be that could be it's harder to steal that you can steal but it's harder to steal this is in, this is who i am this is who my grandmother was this is who my mom dad was and this is what was funny about that and and that's what people want to hear i guarantee the stuff that makes that tickles me is when george, george lopez talks about his grandmother she's racist or whatever like you know and his parents and Lhasa and all that i was like 
oh man, that's the good shit. That's that's what I like, and I think most people are like that. Yeah, no, I I I agree, and I think it's uh, it's it's a blessing almost if you have a unique perspective and you're willing to you're willing to make fun of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I be comfortable with that. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to go to a comedy show and have someone stand up there. I I made this joke before, not to not to bag on this guy because he's an open mic comic, but this guy went on stage and he talked about how big his dick was. And nobody la- like nobody wants to hear you brag about that. That's I don't I don't know that any comedian ever has gone up. To, <laughs> to well, you know I do like the fact that he's putting it out there. No pun intended. <laughs> so, but you know what would be great for him if you if I may pontificate slightly is that comedy set in the negative right. Every single take my wife, yeah. please. That not like you know take her for example, but literally take her because I hate her. So it's. <laughs> It's set in the negative. So if there's a way that he can talk talk about the negative denominator in that premise, and then that's all the joke is, right? It's a it's a premise with an assumption, negative denominator in the middle, and a shattered assumption that is the punchline. Not to you know, but that's the joke. If yeah. he could figure that out with his big dick, he'd be in business. Because no one's talking about how big their dick is as a comedian. No, that's true. Because no, nobody wants you to go on stage and talk about, I'm great, I'm rich, I'm good looking, I bet. No, that's that's not funny. <laughs> yeah, and he could get into his joke and then he could be saying, now I'm feeling self-conscious and a little vulnerability because all you're looking at my dick. You know? <laughs> my eyes are up here. <laughs> yeah, eyes are up here. Perfect, perfect. Nice tag. You know, so like, he, I mean, there's so many things that he could do if he finds the humility. I think that, yeah, you can't be you can't be a, a personal growth enthusiast on stage and everything's positive because comedy is the opposite of, of of these positive. You need the negative denominator, and that could have a kind of a positive connotation to it. But you got to find the, the all those things that are. It doesn't have to be like there's so many levels to, to negativeness, you know, uh, insecurity or you know find find the humility in, in that. So I, yeah. I would like to listen to a comedian about never heard about one like that. You know, all the problems he's had with women. You think it would be good, but actually it's not because, like, you know, and, you know, there's so many <laughs> things that can do. That's that's actually I think that's part of something I worked into a set where I'm like, I don't know, women women all tell me that that a dick's a dick. It's it, you know, unless you're super super small or super super big, they're all the same. But maybe they just tell me that to make me feel better. <laughs> I would love to be the comedian to go on after that guy. Because yeah. <laughs> if he was doing his set, I would just be writing. Like, I'm sitting there like, what, what, okay, like, what can we say after this guy? Because, you know, you got at least a minute and a half of, like, like LPMs, lap per minutes on, like, what, just, just dealing with, like, this guy's routine, you know, because it's so, it's so unique and different. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with open mics because I always, uh, I always try to follow up the person ahead of me uh, and and reference their act if possible. But sometimes with open mics, most of the people in the room are comics who are not paying attention to anything. <laughs> so, right. so that leads to a little awkwardness. And then it's like, I, I, I don't want to pick on this guy either because after his set, he left the room. He's <laughs> he, he's going to take a piss and get a drink and they don't come back in 10 minutes. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. Once again, that always falls back to the rapport with the audience, even though they're comedians. And then if you have love in your heart, like I, one time I was I was on stage, it was in the belly room, and there was like these, there was a Colombian Jewish comedian and a Mexican Jewish comedian. And I was like, are you guys really like Jewish, you know, or you guys just want a job in Hollywood, you know? <laughs> said, I like Steven Spielberg, you know? And I was just saying, you know, and I was like, I, I just thought, you know, I was like, but I said it in a way that like, I'm with you guys. I'm not bagging. I'm just like trying to. I'm joking with you. you know? Yeah. And 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 the audience recognize that. But I think that's something that has to come within. You have to use that internal dialogue. It's like I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm saying this to, as a, as a sincere, funny joke. If I was telling my brother at the dinner table or something like that. Yeah. The um, I, I was able to find a couple. I don't know how old uh these bits are. I was able to find like three or four clips of your stand-up, uh, and I, I, I liked it. I love the, uh, uh, and I don't even know how well you remember it, but there was a Babies Are Us, uh, oh, I, I, and I loved that because 
that's, uh, I, I had my kids young and that's a, very funny to me because now my friends are getting to the age of having kids and I'm like the, yeah, I, I fought that war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny because it sucks because when you write material, Babies R Us is like defunct now, yeah. you know, but now I kind of rewrote something. I was like, I don't know if you know Kendra Scott, which is like a jewelry place here in Texas, which okay. is like really famous for like w- women drag their husbands there and they're just sitting there and I was like, you know, so I'm going to have to, when I do stand up again, I just wrote this recently. I was like, you know, Kendra Scott's the most masculine place on the planet. And, you know, every time I walk in that place, I get this amazing cramps in my vagina. You know? <laughs> and then it's like, but like the worst place was like Babies are Us, you know? And then I have to remember the guys remember that place. You got to segue into that routine because the, the, the Vietnam vets would stare each other with a 40 yard stare. Won't work, you know? I guess it could, but then, then the, the other tagline is like, you know, how long you've been in the shit? You know, I was like, 14 months, this is my second tour, right? <laughs> That doesn't work with Kendra Scott jewelry plays. It only works with having a second kid. So yeah, that's uh, that kind of shit. You know, that's that's fun stuff. Though, to try to figure that out. And, you know, not 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 to, not co- comedy wise, but business wise, I always thought, and I'm divorced, so I don't have to to do this run anymore. But I always thought when I was sitting in those stores and just basically waiting for an hour, I'm like, you know how much money this place would get if they set up a little bar with a just a TV and just sold booze to the husbands while their wives right. were, were trying on clothes for an hour. Why yeah. does that not happen? <laughs> yeah, and you know, if they could pick up a 47 license for the all alcohol, you know, or even just a beer and wine, you know, the beer alone. See, Texas, they do that. There's a, there's a place out here, there's like a little, you know, boutique shop, you know, it has like clothing for men and women. And right in the middle of this place, it's on the square here in Georgetown, there's a bar with big screen TVs for sports and it's like ah these guys know what the guys want you know and it's like we're like animals you know it's like yeah. you know lead them right there it's well like, it's it, it, it would be reminiscent of an airport bar which is my favorite place in the world to drink because everyone's just kind of in the set nobody's it could be 9 30 in the morning no one's judging you for drinking because nobody knows where you're going what you're doing so it's yeah. it's that same atmosphere we're all just we're all just uh uh travelers passing through and uh you know <laughs> you that's your premise you should write something about, I've, i have not heard comedians talk so much about they talk about airports and airlines that nauseum but airport bars haven't heard some material on that i mean you should talk about airport bars because that's like what a fun place that is oh yeah they don't know what time this could be day for you even though it's like in the morning because who knows where you've been you've been coming back from france or something and the, 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 what a fun place to hang out because you, you are not judged and the adventure is just about to happen. You know, you, you're just one step away from getting kicked off the plane and arrested. Yeah. Well, I, I always, uh, I've said, I'm like, I will happily go pick people up from the airport if they're, if they're willing to drive me home. I'll, I'll, I'll show up three hours early and get drunk with strangers at an airport because everyone's pretty affable too. They're, you know, a lot of single people just looking to talk. <laughs> Well, I think that concept's fairly, you know, uh, fairly popular right now because it seems like everybody's drinking in the airport and then getting on a plane and continuing to drink. <laughs> That's causing so, some issues. Meanwhile, I, I always, uh, actually, I, I have wanted to figure out a way to work this in. Spirit Airlines has such a shitty uh, uh, reputation because you pay for everything on those planes. It's like, you know, yes. uh, you, uh, but... I was there, my buddy and I were flying to New Orleans on Spirit Airlines, and we were drunk, and uh, I guess, I, I'm pretty loud when I drink, and I asked the, the stewardess, I'm like, can I, can, can we get a few more? Uh, she comes back, dumps a bunch of mini bottles, I'm like, you know, here's, she's like, no, you guys are having a great time, it's on me. I'm like, wow. what the fuck, they just gave me free booze on Spirit Airlines. <laughs> How long ago was this? Uh, 2019. So this was before they had problems. So, you know, it was like, like, you know, they have that. They should open up a bar in the airport called Spirits. There you go. <laughs> I mean, work it into the curriculum, especially now. People like are like sitting there. It's like, you know what? Do what they did for, you know, Jeff over there. You know, if you guys are waiting and, you know, here, get smashed on us for Spirit Airlines. You know, yeah. have some spirits. Well, if you're, you know, if you're a happy drunk things are good it's it's when people are get angry and fight yeah those <laughs> i swear to god i was in connecticut about eight years ago with my wife and i was had to get back to 
before that, I was living in LA, so it was probably about 12 years ago, and I'm with the in-laws, and it's snowing out in Connecticut, and I can stop at the airport, can't go. Gotta drive back 45 minutes to their house. Next day, go to the airport, you know, and I'm pissed off because my wife's like, we're not gonna get out. I was like, we're gonna get out of here. I don't care what happens. I'm, I'm making this happen. I'm not staying in this freaking town any longer. I was there for like two weeks, you know, visiting her family. And I'm the, I'm the grump, right? You know, and the whole family's like, holy shit. Third day I go there with the whole family, got turned away again because of this snowstorm. I said, screw it. I said, let's go to your favorite bar restaurant right now. I, and I ordered like three highballs and I don't drink. And I, I was like, that turned out to be the funnest night of the whole trip. <laughs> This got some, I'm tripping over there with the luggage back at the house there. I'm just laughing, you know, and you got to make lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we're, we're getting close uh, to, to, I'll wrap things up. I did, I, beforehand, I mentioned we were talking before a recording, and, and it, I, I, I didn't uh, mention it, but I will bring it up with, uh, you're, you're a Dolphins fan, and I mentioned Dan Marino. So my mom was a Dolphins fan. And the Dolphins were always on TV for, for me growing up. Uh, and uh, I hated Dan Marino because I thought he was such a mean jerk because he always was yelling at his teammates. Yes. <laughs> and I thought, so I secretly, my, my mom's rooting for the Dolphins and I'd secretly be sitting there rooting for the other team all the time. <laughs> like I became a, a, a closeted Bills fan, I remember, because it's like, well, Jim Kelly doesn't yell at his teammates. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, Marino had the Mamba mentality, you know, yeah. he wasn't out there to make friends, you know, so I got a quick Dan Marino story. I never got to meet him, but I was working on a commercial and one of the big security guys was a, he, he, he was a line, he was a defensive lineman for the Buffalo Bills for three seasons, the first three seasons that Marino, you know, started. Actually, mm. the season before he started and then two seasons after Marino started. I said, what was it like playing against Dan Marino? And he's like, that dude changed the way football was played at that time because of his superpower, which is his quick release. So if you're a football fan, the moment that that dude decided from the football to leave his fingertips, and it was just a flick by, of the ear, the moment he decided for that ball to leave his fingertips and he wanted that ball to be in the receiver's hands was faster than any other. You know, Brady's got all the gifts, but to this Day, if the, there's a, I bet you if there's a way to measure that moment of fingertip to in the receiver's hands, I think Marino probably still has some kind of weird kind of you know record about that. And he's, he's oh yeah, free. yeah, he he's one of the few who could still play today. I mean, if he if he his style would work just fine today. I don't I don't know that all of them would. <laughs> Absolutely, I mean, I'm a huge Dan Marino fan. You know, I mean, but you know, I would say that. You know, my wife, she's from Connecticut, so she's a huge New England fan. Oh. So that sucks for me because Brady is the GOAT. There's no doubt about that. All, all around. I mean, what do you say? It's, to it. I, I, I tried to argue uh, with someone uh, that Drew Brees, I, I'd take Drew Brees over Tom Brady. Uh, and, and I'll still stand by it, but... Listening to me try to make the argument, I'm like, oh, the, he's stupid. <laughs> it is. It, 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 you know, to fa the, the fact that the, the, all those rings that he had with New England, but the fact that he goes from New England, this is, this is amazing. This is Because football, I've always said this, it's not like a basketball team where you've got five players on the court at one time. you got 12, you know, you've got 11 players, offense, 11 players, defense, special teams. There's so many moving parts, so many things that happen. The dude leaves, and it's not like Tampa Bay was that great, and he is a big part of the whole mentality and everything. Dude leaves, you know, the, the New England Patriots. And then the year after he leaves, he gets he wins the championship with it. That is, it's sick. I mean, that's be that'll be in the cauldrons of the NFL history forever. Of something that probably will never be eclipsed. Yeah, well, and he he did he brings uh, one thing that's funny with him. He didn't, especially the the uh, game against the Saints and the game against the Packers in the playoffs. He didn't play very well, but it, it's not it, it's not about him. Somehow he elevates the rest of the team. Uh, I, I don't. It, there's no way to explain it. I, I think that's. It's like yeah, I, individually, if you watch his skill set, there are plenty of quarterbacks I would take over him. But there's something there that's just not not measurable. Well, maybe it is measurable. He's won seven Super Bowls. 
Right. But, I think it's criti- critical mass of all the elements, you know, put together in a synergy that creates this dynamic, you know, uh, obvious thing of success for him. It, it's just, you know, they'll be studying that dude for a long time and trying to emulate, you know, the success he's had. And I don't think, you know, like in life, it's not, it's not all black and white, it's shades of gray. And I think that, you know, that's why I think people need to look at more at like, you know, whatever art form is standard, whatever, maybe that's like the, how we end today. You know, it's like, you know, looking at things, um, you know, as many parts and not just, you know, one big, you know, brush stroke uh, of, you know, something. Because that, I think that dude has got many elements that create the big stew. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't love all of the Bucks fans that have materialized around where I live because they didn't exist <laughs> a few, nine months ago. They, they, they weren't real. <laughs> well, since uh, Gruden, they needed something to cheer about. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, I've had a blast talking to you. Uh, uh, we t- covered a lot of stuff, and there's a gazillion other things we could probably talk about that we didn't touch on, but I appreciate it. And, yeah, I didn't uh, know you were a comedian, man, and that, I, that's why we clicked right away. I was like, oh, that must be it, you know, because, you know, cause, you know I, this was a it, it truly uh, effortless conversation. This was like... Uh, that, that, yeah, that's how I like it, and, and, and you're right. There's something, uh, there's something about talking to comedians that's different because uh, we talk about football. They <laughs> just randomly lead down the path where it's like, it's not what I meant to talk about, but that doesn't matter. It's entertaining. <laughs> yeah, to bring it full circle, we, we both have that 40-yard stare, of, of, of a similar <laughs> stare of, like, of the same insecurities. We all have the same wants and needs of, of the particular person that wants to be a stand-up comedian, I think. Yeah, no, you're. I, I think I think there's that intangible thing. <laughs> uh, so where can uh, you've got the Long Shot Leaders podcast? Uh, uh, aside from that, uh, or plug that. Tell me where people can follow you and and all that. They can find everything on LongShotLeaders.com. It's got all my social there. You know, uh, you know, if you, it's it's not. It's sometimes it's comedy, but it's mostly like we tell stories of underdogs that have found success. So, I mean, it gets pretty deep. You know, I've, it's a different side of me, a different sub-personality to where I'll get into, like, we've had Holocaust survivors and, mm. and uh, you know, like victims and, uh, you know, but then also Academy Award winners, you know, that, like, you know, you know, have, you know, more cheerful stories, you know, just, you know, trying to struggle and then, you know, getting over struggle and success. But if anybody's listening that has a long shot story, somebody that's overcome, you know, obstacles, not just financial, it's any kind of, like, major obstacle in life and found success, Give us a shot, you know, call us, uh, you know, go to longshotleaders.com. There's a pull-down menu. Share your story with us and let's maybe have you on the show, you know. But that's how they can get a hold of me at longshotleaders.com. Awesome, awesome. And I'll put all the links in the uh, show notes and uh, everyone should check that out. You you did have one episode I listened to the other day that you, uh, it was you on, uh, I forget the lady's name now. I, I had it written down and I don't know where I wrote it. Uh, Holy Downs? Yeah, she she made me want to run through a damn wall. I'm like, Dude, I don't, I, <laughs> I need her to narrate my life. <laughs> oh shit! Oh my god! I was listening. I was like, I had chills. I was like, man, she made me. I mean, I, you know, I've had. I'm some proud of my some of my accomplishments and all that. But the, when she starts talking like that, Tony Robbins, like she like talks like Tony Robbins, like in the late '80s, to where you're like, yeah, I'm gonna get in there. And like she she was very inspiring. And I, I she's hypnotic the way she yeah. kind of talks. And um, she's going to be on the show next week uh, because she has a, a wonderful long shot story that she had to overcome, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, it's almost like that's the kind of person that, you know, you want to hang out with maybe at two o'clock in the morning, light the incense, some candles, some wine. <laughs> and it's like, you just talk for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how great I am. <laughs> just in general. You talk about yeah. anything. Talk about my dog, you know, or anything. Just like, so so positive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, Michael, thank you again for joining me. I uh, I greatly appreciate your time and uh, had a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, likewise. So much fun. Thank you. Well, goodness. I had so much fun talking to Michael. Uh, one of those guests where uh, I probably could uh, talk to him for hours Uh kind of guy speaking of airport bars he's the kind of guy who uh would be the dream person to uh come across at an airport bar and uh just uh talk for a while while you 
you know, drink and await your flight. Uh, I, I, uh, gosh, really have the desperate, uh, desperate, uh, desire now to just go sit at an airport bar and drink, uh, <laughs> anyways, I hope you enjoyed it, uh, check Michael out, his podcast, Long Shot Leaders, and, uh, you know, I, I hope you enjoyed it, because this was, a lot of fun for me, he's done so many awesome things, and, uh, you know, just a, a very fun guy to talk to, and, uh, you know, just a, uh, gosh, uh, a dynamic, uh, 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 person who's done so many awesome things, and really, we, we did not talk enough about his success he's had in business, uh, with his, uh, with his TARP, company, which has made over a hundred million dollars, uh, uh, Abadak is the name, I don't even think that came up, uh, I know we, we briefly, uh, touched on it, but there were so many other things we talked about, uh, and, uh, just had a, a great time, I didn't even get to ask him if Andy Dick was, uh, so crazy back when he worked with him, uh, as he seems now, so, <laughs> Anyways, hope you enjoyed it. Remember to like, subscribe, share, follow, uh, uh, you know, everything short of stalking me. Stalking me would be quite boring for you, I think. Uh, that's, that's the main reason I discourage that. Uh, but, you know, as long as you're not hurting me, I don't, I don't care. Uh, all right. Hope you enjoyed it. See you back here for the next one. Uh, you know, go 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 do something. Get some vitamin D out in the sun. It'll uh, help you uh, not get COVID or deal with COVID. I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Ask Joe Rogan. He knows. All right. Peace.